Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. So 2020 is right around the corner. I'm so excited about it, and I hope you are too. And I have a lot of personal goals that I want to reach, and many of those are financial. And I don't talk about finances as much on the show as other topics, but finances are an important part of wellness. Financial wellness is a thing, and the show is about having an overall balanced life and taking a holistic approach to health. And part of that is our mental health, our emotional health, and balancing our finances. This is an important part of life and something that I've been wanting to touch on more on this podcast, which means bringing in an expert to do so. And when it comes to finances in particular, this is a conversation that is had more often in male-dominated spaces. A lot of women are confused about finances. They don't spend as much time researching and looking into this as men. There is definitely a gender difference in that space. And that's why I wanted to bring someone on the show who specializes in helping women specifically reach their financial and professional goals. So on today's podcast, I have the perfect person to chat about this topic, and today's guest is Sally Krawcheck. She is the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, a digital-first, mission-driven investment platform for women specifically. Elevest is one of the fastest-growing digital investment platforms and has been named number 24 on CNBC's Top 50 Disruptor list. 14 on LinkedIn's 50 most sought after startups and number two in New York and one of Entrepreneur Magazine's top 100 brilliant ideas. Sally Krawcheck is also chair of the Elevate Network, which is a 135,000 strong global professional women's network. She is chair of the PAX Elevate Global Women's Leadership Fund, which is a fund that invests in the top rated companies for advancing women. And she is the best-selling author of the book, own it, The Power of Women at Work. That is a book that I highly recommend all women read. Sally is recognized as one of the most influential women in business. She's been recognized by Inc. as a top female founder called The Last Honest Analyst by Fortune Magazine. She was named the seventh most powerful woman in the world by Forbes. She was number nine on Fast Company's list of the 100 most creative people in business. And she has received recognition from so many other incredible media outlets. So she is definitely someone who knows what she's talking about. Before she launched Elevest, Sally Krawcheck built a really successful career on Wall Street. She was the CEO of Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, U.S. Trust, the City Private Bank, and Sanford C. Bernstein. She was also CFO for Citigroup. 
And before that, she was a top-ranked research analyst covering the securities industry. The point is that Sally has a ton of experience in this industry, and if you have any financial questions, she is the person to ask. So in this episode, we are going to talk all about finances for women. We're going to talk about debt, getting out of debt, opening credit cards, why women feel this block around learning more about finances, how to figure out what to invest in, the different types of investments you can make. She shares more about her experience on Wall Street and working in the finance industry and more about how Elevest works. And I personally use Elevest for investing and I highly recommend you look into it as well, especially if you feel like you don't know where to start, but you don't just want your money sitting in the bank. Definitely learn more about this because this is a great option because Elevest basically does everything for you. And we are lucky enough to get a special offer from Elevest. So if you use the promo code wellnessrealness or just head to elevest.com slash wellnessrealness, then you will automatically receive $50 into your account to start making investments through Elevest. We will talk more about how that works in this episode. And the information will also be in the show notes. And I think after listening to this episode, you will definitely be interested in learning more and using that promo code. I am so grateful that Sally took the time to come on the podcast. It was such an honor chatting with her. She is such an inspirational, influential leader. And it was just such an honor to chat with her. And I'm so, so grateful that she took the time to come on the show and share all this knowledge with all of us. And I know that you guys are going to get a lot out of it. So I'm really excited for you to hear this. So if you are ready to talk about all things finances for women, then just keep listening because we are going to hop into this interview with Sally Krawcheck. Thank you so much, Sally, for coming on the podcast. I have been so excited to chat with you. You are such a powerhouse. So for people who are not familiar with you. Can you just share a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah. So, um, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. So I am a fintech entrepreneur in, in my, I was going to say old age, but let's say young age. Um, I spent most of my career on wall street. I ran uh, companies like Merrill Lynch, the wealth management business, U.S. Trust. I was chief Smith Barney. When there was a Smith Barney, I was the chief financial officer of City. And today I'm the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, which is a digital first investing platform uh, for women. The only one out there that was specifically built with thousands of hours of research into what women are looking for in investing because the investing industry has been a little more male. And the result of it up until Elevest is that women have kept the majority of their money in cash, whereas men have kept, have invested the majority of their money. And it's cost your podcast listeners a good fortune, a good fortune over their lives. Yeah. And I want to dive into all of that. Mm-hmm. But I want to start at the beginning with your experience mm-hmm. on Wall Street um, and mm-hmm. kind of what got you into interested in Wall Street and what your experience was like? Yeah, it sort of is one of the great surprises of my life that I ended up working in finance. If you and I had met when I was in middle school or high school or college, I think I took one math class in college and then was like, no, thank you. Um, I was really, I was a journalism major. I loved reading. I loved history. 
And it's just one of these surprises that how the heck did I end up here? And and I frankly, it was because of money that when I was graduating from college, uh, there were journalism. Uh, there was a journalism job offer that paid not very much. And there were a few Wall Street job offers uh, that paid quite a bit more. And I interviewed on Wall Street because I thought, well, gosh, you know, I, uh, you know, I should really know about something. And so my my original thinking was, well, let me go to Wall Street and then become a business journalist. And, you know, to sort of more my surprise than anybody else's, um, I never got I never got back into journalism. I, actually, I should say, as a side note, I tried. I couldn't get a job offer. Uh, but I ended up staying on Wall Street and building a career out of it, surprisingly to me. And. How did you feel being in such a male-dominated space? Yeah. I think a couple things. I think, you know, when people say, did being a woman on Wall Street hurt you or help you? My answer is yes. Um, and it is very easy for us to talk about the time when I had the Xerox copies of the male genitalia left on my desk, when people would just make fun of me for being a woman, when I was, you know, not, I was put, you know, not on the great teams that were doing the great deals when I was in investment banking, but on the one that I was literally told to babysit an older investment banker and keep him from getting in trouble. So, so there were those where, you know, you just felt like because of your gender or because they didn't like Southerners or because who knows what people were trying to run you out of the business. There was actually sort of a positive to it too, which we never talk about which is that if I was good at my job when I was a research analyst, if I was good at my job and the clients really just wanted to make money and they, I had you know, 18, 20 competitors and I was the only female, you couldn't forget me. Mm. You, you could forget the guys. You could forget, oh, you know, that one great analyst. Well, he's a man. He's got brown hair. And he, well, where's why? Like, what? But it was, you know, it's that woman. And if you said, well, she's got sort of a Polish name. Um, so in some ways it helped me because if, if I, because I stood out and if you were good and you stood out, you could have a pretty swift career trajectory, which in fact I did, I did. I was the fastest at the time. The financial times said that from the time I started as a research analyst, you know, covering different stocks in the industry to the time I was ranked number one in the field was a, you know, not to brag, but it was a record amount of time. And I think in part because I just stood out. And how did the men around you respond to your success? Depends on which man. Um, I had some great men. I got my first real promotion uh, from a, a gentleman who was my boss's boss when I was five months pregnant. And it wasn't like you couldn't see I was pregnant. I assure you, when I was five months pregnant with my daughter, I looked like I was 27 months pregnant. Um, so I had those who just go, 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 go. And then look, you know, I, there were some who were not so open and, and maybe it was gender, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, when I was promoted, my, my then second promotion to director of research, the gentleman who had been my mentor, who would then end up working for me, who had turned down the same job, by the way, 50 times, right? He was asked 50 times, 50 times he said no. Then they came to me. He had a fit in public when I got the job and said he would refuse to work for me, I shouldn't get it, et cetera. Um, and, you know, was it was it ageism? Was it gender? You know, was it, se you know, sexism? It's, it's hard to say, but it was certainly Sallyism um, <laughs> of some type. So there were some tough times. And there was one other guy at the same at the same company where when I would stand up to speak, 
in the morning meeting, he would just shake his head and let out these huge, long sighs. And it was a sort of weird feeling of there's actually nothing I can do with him that's right, that here I am in a professional situation where if I zig, he's going to say I should zag. If I zag, he's going to say I should have you know, gone lateral. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was tremendously frustrating to just feel like before you opened your mouth and anyone knew you that there were you know, several you know, st- strikes against you. Yeah, I can only imagine. So how did you kind of get through that? Did you ever think about just stopping? Uh, no. Yeah, I just couldn't know. I mean, can you imagine, right? This guy who is my old mentor has a fit when I'm promoted. And then what am I going to say? I quit. Never mind, I quit. Yeah. You know, you just have to, you just go on. And if not for you, then your kids are watching you, even if you don't know they're watching you. The other women who are two levels more junior to you, um, and then, you know, just sort of having a sense of pride in one's work. Um, and I thought, you're just not, first of all, you're not going to outwork me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just, you're just not going to run me out of here. And so there were some miserable years. I mean, and by the way, years. Uh, but, you know, they paid off because I was taking risks. I was working hard. I was sort of playing to win. I wasn't playing it safe. And, you know, I got the opportunity from... Sanford Bernstein, where I was promoted to run 386 people because I had taken risk, because I had a strategy at Sanford Bernstein that was different from the rest of the industry, because it was very client focused, because it eventually paid off with a lot of business. Um, It put me on the cover of Fortune magazine as the last honest analyst during a period of scandal on Wall Street. And as a result, I got the opportunity to run Smith Barney in the city private bank per city, which was, you know, I went from the few hundred people to something like 45,000 people. Um, so a lot of risk, a lot of determination and resilience. And there were points in my career when it paid off. What do you feel like was the biggest risk you took? Well, I think, you know, it maybe came down to the very first risk I took, which was the first piece of research I published as a brand new analyst that nobody had heard of before in, in an industry that Quite frankly, I was not particularly familiar with, but I did a lot of analytics in the numbers. So the very first piece of research I published was negative. And as I was getting ready to publish it, the feedback I got from a person at the company, who I really do, I mean, I think he had my best interest to heart. We were both from the same hometown. So it was sort of like, hey, look, let me give you a heads up. He said, Sally, just don't go negative. Just stay in the pack, write mildly positive research you can be successful. It's Wall Street. You can make money. And the, and by the way, if you're negative, then we're going to be mad at you. You know, the, the people who you're trying to give the advice to pretty much own the stock that you're, you know, dumping all over. Um, or they don't, in which case they're not, um, you know, particularly interested in it. So, if you're negative and you're right, at best you get grudging respect. And if you're negative and you're wrong, nobody's going to like you and you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. And I went ahead and published that negative piece of research. So I think that was, it might not have been the biggest like, macro front page of the Wall Street Journal um, you know, risk, but it was a first risk that really sort of set the tone for my career of, I'm not here to you know, sort of keep my head down and try to make some money and have sort of an average career. If, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to put the client first mm-hmm. and do it in a way that the industry simply wasn't at the time. Some might argue still today, but at the time and take some real risks and actually have some fun. And that means, and it did, 
I might end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which I did. And I might also get fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which also happened. They're all really the same thing. <laughs> well, I love that attitude, honestly. I'm, I'm also curious, since you brought it up, about um, being pregnant. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you're pregnant, how did that impact your career? Well, you know, it's sort of hard to say because I was pregnant and I got promoted and I don't know what would have ha- happened if I hadn't been pregnant. Would I gotten promoted twice? Would I not gotten promoted? I mean, yeah. it just, you know, it's sort of hard to disentangle it. Um, what I would say, it's funny because I was actually talking to some young women today. One of the accidents of my career is that I had my children early. Um, I have so many of my friends who started their careers got the first job, got themselves established, you know, then got a promotion. And then all of a sudden they're having babies in their late thirties or forties. I had my son in my twenties. Um, he he was not, I was not listening. He was not exactly planned. (laughs) My daughter was not exactly planned, but, but part of, by the way, I think if I'd ever tried to plan them, we never would have had them because it would have been, well, this is not, you know, this is not a good time. This is not a good time. And boom, we're trying to, do this, go on vacation. Let's not do it then. Um, but the fact that I had him in my twenties, actually before my career took off before I, my son, before I had the job that led to my first real success, Mm. you know, I think it actually helped me because I had him. And then I was off to sort of a running start where I didn't end up taking career breaks, um, you know, or law, you know, longer family leaves. Um, because I, you know, I wasn't working when I had my son. So I got in the sort of straight run of, you know, working that may or may not have helped. And then I always say my secret weapon was my kids that people think about, oh, if you were taking care of the kids and some of your competitors and sort of a male dominated business weren't, but I always found and research now backs this up that I had some of my best ideas after I played with the babies. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I'd work all day. And then think, ah, oh, I have to let this problem go because I got to go home. I got a feeding. I got to bathe. I got to get in the bed. Well, it was only after I was playing with the with the children that, I, oh, that's the answer to the problem I was thinking through. It happened not once, but several times. That's so interesting. There's like there's research behind that. Yes, there is. That when you're trying to solve hard problems, that if you think and think and think, and then if you put it aside, you mm. can let your sort of subconscious go to work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happened for me on on many occasions. I, I love that perspective. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of women now like still feel like they have to choose or, you know, the mm. timing, the time that there's a right or wrong way to time it. And I think it just kind of goes to show that you can make it work and there are pros to either way. Well, and, and look, you know, what I also had at the time was this supportive boss. I think it, or I think I know it would be a very different story if I'd worked for a jerk. Yeah. So, you know, sort of the, I think we still have to be cognizant that this, that the, I don't want to say stars have to align, but the, the building blocks have to align and that it's a lot easier to be successful. Let's face it. You know, if yes, if you're risk tolerant and yes, if you work hard, but also if you have a boss who is, you know, not stuck in 1952, as some bosses still are. Yeah, very true. So I want to mm-hmm. I want to move into when you decided to create Elevest. Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that was really, you know, it's interesting. Before I founded Elevest, I had a number of people say, Sally, you spent all this time in the investing industry. And 
you're a woman and why don't you, you know, start an investing platform for women? And my reaction was completely negative for like six reasons. Like we don't women. What do you think? We women need our own thing. How dare you? And that's sexist. And we're some dumbed down junior varsity. But, you know, I was in the bar. I mean, like everything. Right. I remember actually sitting in a friend's office out in San Francisco and he, you know, I, I mean, I had every excuse like they're, you know, it, we don't invest as much and we're more risk averse and every line of just sort of just BS came out of my mouth. And then one morning, again, after thinking this through and putting it aside and I'm literally putting on my mascara and I'm like, son of a gun. You know, I had a series of revelations, one of which is that the retirement savings crisis in our country is a woman's crisis. Eighty percent of us die single. If there's no, we live longer than the men in our lives. If there's not enough money for retirement, we're the ones who are left with it, which then sort of had a cascade of sort of insights, which is, well, a way to solve this is get more money in the hands of women. Oh, that darn gender pay gap. Well, every, a lot of people are working on that. You know, we need to move, you know, further, faster, sooner on that. But whew, that that's got a lot of folks. And then I began to think about, wait a second, women don't invest as much as men do. Let me do the calculation. It cost us hundreds of thousands of million dollars over the course of our lives. Wait a minute. You know, gee, there have been these women's initiatives, but they've all been, they've all, all failed. They've all been marketing initiatives. So they, they've all, frankly, infantilized us. Honest to goodness, I saw one today. I won't say who it was from, but, you know, it was one in which, you know, it's for women come and your money worth and know you yourself and invest and all this stuff. And had, how do you feel when you see your investment statement? It had like a frowny face and then a teary face. And I'm like, oh, wow, right? This is just bad. So everything that had been out there was really infantilizing to us or condescending. Don't buy the shoes. Don't buy the latte. Invest in the markets. Guilt-inducing so I had a moment of, wait a second, wait a second, this is a big deal. And for all that, you know, working on that gender pay gap matters, it's like you, you got to, you know, be good at your job. You got to have a boss who's open to it. You got to perform. You got to get ready for the negotiation. Investing is actually a choice we can each make and we can do it in 10 to 15 minutes. And historically, it has been the best use of 10 to 15 minutes, the most profitable use of anything you could do choosing to invest. And so, you know, getting that, you know, 71 cents of every dollar in cash to, you know, getting that money, some good portion of that money into the markets. And so at that point, I said, look, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe the old industry, you know, belief that women are too risk averse to invest, maybe it's true, maybe it's true. But if I'm sitting here and I've had this amazing career that I never expected I would have, I had the ability to, you know, pull together the investments team that could do this, the tech team that could do this, raise the venture capital funding that will be needed for it. I think you got to be a female to do it. You got to be a woman in order to sort of intuitively get it. There are like five people who could do this. I think it's got to be. And it's, you know, I know the other four and they're not going to. So I think it's got to be me. Um, and I would not be able to see this gap in wealth for women and walk away from it and, and not try to fix it. So that was really the, the moment of founding at of Elevest. So tell me more about Elevest and how it works for people, for listeners. 
So today we've got really three three separate offerings, one of which is digital, um, no minimum. So you can invest, you can open an account with a penny. You can invest with a dollar. Um, digital first, uh, goals-based, what I call intentional investing, where you go through the experience, you input information about yourself, um, you input information about what you want to achieve. Maybe it's build wealth. It might also be to buy a house in five years. It might also be to retire at 65. It might also be to start your own business. You tell us what you want to do when you want to do it. We have a p- very powerful investing algorithm, the only one that's gender aware, the only one that knows that women live longer than men, really important for retirement planning, that our salaries peak sooner than men, super frustrating, also really important and puts together a highly customized investment portfolio for you. Not just this for you and this for me, but this this investment portfolio for your have a baby goal, a very different one from your retirement goal, a very different one from your home goal. So we highly customize, highly personalize these investment portfolios. It's not about beating the market. It's not about watching CNBC for two hours a day and trying to figure out what stock is going to go up and what's going to go down. It's putting together a well-reasoned, highly customized investment portfolio whose goal is to get you to your goal or better in the vast majority of markets. So you can do it digital, uh, very low cost. There's also a premium offering um, in which you can get a certified financial planner and executive coach. Um, That's 50 basis points. That's a $50,000 minimum. And there's a high net worth uh, private wealth business as well, where you can get a financial advisor. So we're really engaging with women and our allies, you know, 18 to 86, I think is our our oldest client right now. Um, You know, mostly women because we're so searingly focused on on women, Uh, but, you know, non-binary as well. Some great male allies, too. Um, and really, you know, try to provide across that spectrum, um, you know, the ability to reach one's goals, to have one's money work to reach one's goals. And what's really important about it is that, um, you know, beyond that is that today money is women's number one source of stress. And the act of saving and investing, the act of doing it is our number one driver and our confidence in our ability to achieve our future goals. So it's a very empowering, very affirming Act as well, which is what we try to bring through in in the um, you know in the product. Yeah. So can we like break apart? You mentioned some before, but like some more like getting specific on the differences between investments for women versus men. You you showed yeah. out some interesting information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'd say it's a it's a it's a lot of stuff. Okay. So when we built the product. We spent thousands of hours, literally thousands of hours with women. And we learned, you know, we built the algorithm, as mentioned, the only gender aware one. So, look, it's important if you're a woman for your investing algorithm to, quote, unquote, know that, you know, because if you with, for example, to get a little morbid, if we were to assume you die on average, well, then you might you run out of money mm-hmm. because on average, women live longer than men do. If we assume you earn on average then you could run out of money because men, sadly, unfortunately, frustratingly earn more than women do and their salaries peak later than women's do. Okay, so there's sort of the technical part of it that is important. But then there are the insights that we gleaned from all of this research. And and here are a few of them that, you know, we built into our product. Women, we tend to think holistically. 
we tend to use you know, more parts of our brain than the guys do. When they make decisions, they tend to make them faster. We tend to make them more holistically. Well, okay, that's good to know because most of the offerings out there sort of have you invest sequentially, invest in, in, in what you want to achieve here, invest in what you want to achieve there. But we heard from a lot of women, wait a second, I've got a pretty complex picture and, and how do I know if I want to invest to start a business if I don't even know if I can afford to have a kid. I don't even know if I can afford to buy the house I want. So I all of these need to go together. And so, you know, we have an option where you can, you know, see the trade-offs from one goal to another. Um, you know, another thing that we found is when it comes to risk, the traditional industry tried to give you as a more investing risk. Why? Because we have more risk than when markets are good, which on average they have historically been. Yeah, there's volatility, but they historically have been upward trending. If that's the case, then I want, if my goal is to outperform the market, right? You know, to again, watch CNBC all day, pick those stocks, then the way to, a way to do that is to give you more risk, right? More equities. Then on average, you come out ahead. Whoa, that's not what women are looking for. What we're looking for is not more just to outperform um, or even more money. We're looking to achieve our goals. And so, and this gets a little bit technical, but in a way, we try to give you the less risk, right? If you can get to buy your home in X number of years as you want to, and you can take less risk to do it, all the better. So we essentially, you know, sort of keep a, give you a risk budget and give you more risk for the longer term um, goals that you want to accomplish where you can ride the ups and downs of the market and in general come ahead, but much less risk for something that's shorter term. So, you know, I could go into a thousand little examples. Um, another one, another one, men will invest through jargon they don't understand. You know, we women were so used to getting the A's that we're like, whoa, I don't, I don't get that. Let me go figure that out. Um, and so, you know, when you look at our site, it is by no means dumbed down. It is by no means less sophisticated. But we don't voice a whole bunch of jargon on you because, well, that will make us feel smart and like in the know and, hey, here's more jargon. We've got the inside scoop. It will drive women away. Yeah. And so, again, a thousand different insights like that. Yeah, so thinking about like how so many less women invest than men, do you think that's really because we're – more risk averse or because nope. we don't have the education around it? Well, I think it's because we've received messages for through our whole lives that this is not for us. And one of them is that we are risk averse, mm. which is not true. What our research shows is that, and by the way, why do we think that? Because the investing industry looks and says, oh, look, women invest less than men do. Huh. Well, it can't be our fault, says the investing industry. It must be their fault. And so rather than the investing industry coming to the conclusion that we have not built a product that makes sense for women, so they're staying away in droves, instead it says, well, they're just, they just must be uh, risk averse, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so from childhood, even today, even you know, in 2019, 2020, we send messages to girls and to young women and women that money is really more of a male you know, expertise. So in households today, little boys are given higher allowances for the same chores as little girls. 
they're told, go to the top of the jungle gym, dare, be great, become CEO, watch daddy invest, you know, make money, you know, become wealthy. Little girls, save, budget, scrimp, you know, don't go to the top of the jungle gym, don't get your dress dirty, Um, you know, money is scarce. Mm -hmm. When at school, boys get higher grades in math for the same answers as girls. When we get older, um, young men, there's plenty of male money, media, CNBC, we've talked about Bloomberg, Fox Business, Barron's, Cranes, Old Money Magazine, you name it. Name a female money media. There isn't any. Mm. Um, You know, there's some podcasts now, but typically the messages where the messages to boys and men are dare, grow, dream, The words we use around money for women are budget, save, you know, scarce. It's not, you know, we saw one headline not so long ago. Financial planning doesn't have to be really, really hard. I guess it just has to be really hard. You know, and then we receive these sort of coded messages that drive me nuts that are things like don't buy the latte, don't have the facial, invest in the markets instead, and you'll become a millionaire. It's never, which, by the way, the math absolutely doesn't work, but it's guilt-inducing and it's coded language to women. Nobody says, don't buy the six-pack, give up the ribeye, mm-hmm. right? It's these frivolous, you know, sort of frippery. So we receive messages as women that we are not good with money um, and that we are not good at investing, even though the research tells us quite the opposite. So I, I think it's society has sort of said money, you know, not in so many words, but money is for men. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, when we look at the industry, it doesn't make sense to us, right? We look at the industry and 86% of financial advisors are men and 90% of mutual fund managers are men and 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men. So we look at the industry, we don't see ourselves in it. You know, the language is very male, alpha, outperform, beat the market. CNBC and Bloomberg are very sports-like, and the industry symbol is a bull. It is a phallic symbol. So I don't think it's that we're risk-averse. In fact, I know it's not. It's that we have essentially received messages, multimedia messages, that, ladies, this is not for you. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to that um, are connecting very much with it. It's probably resonating. So what would you suggest to someone who is listening to this thinking, that's me. I'm kind of scared of this whole investment thing. Where do I start? What do I do? Well, Alabas seems like a good place to me um, to start because it was it was built for your listeners, um, and it really just doesn't take particularly long. I would urge you to, you know, to go in to look around, um, you know, to begin, you know, see what it's about. We've you and I were talking earlier. We'll. We've got a code, www.lfs.com slash wellness realness, um, that will put $50 in a new account to enable your listeners to begin to play with this. Or you can go over to our, you know, iPhone app um, and put that in for the gift code because we want to, you know, our goal is to get more women um, and our allies investing. Um, And so, you know, for us to make it easy for you and and really risk-free to start Mm -hmm. is important for us. Well, thank you so much for including that code. I'm sure everyone's very appreciative of it, um, as am I. But you were talking before about how, you know, so much of the 
so many of the resources are very male focused. Um, are there any resources that you recommend people if they just want to like learn more about finance in general? Yeah. We spend a lot of time on that at Olivest. So, um, you know, because we actually saw such a big opening in the industry, if you and I had this conversation two years ago, I would say, gee, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You know, there's some books out there, but, um, you know, oftentimes they are, they can be written by people who don't have the firsthand experience, have not spent the, you know, their lives in the industry. Mm -hmm. So we produce an enormous amount of content in Elevest um, just for this, Ju you know, just to look at these money issues from the lens of women. Because, again, things can be can be quite different. The You know, one of the first pieces we did was the real cost of a career break because no one actually sat down and calculated if you take off two years to look after the kids. That's amazing. Um, but we hypothesized that we were probably substantially underestimating the cost of it. And in fact, you know, we were. Um, I'll leave that hanging there so people will go look for the the, the article. But we, if you go to lms.com slash magazine, we have a just a tremendous trove of articles, um, you know, sort of short books in there, et cetera, that can be, you know, the five things you need to know before you invest. You know, the Go-Getter's Guide to investing to closing your gender pay gaps, everything with a, with a view um, toward the perspective of women. I love that. I'm curious when you think women should start investing, like at what age? As soon as you possibly can, right? Yesterday is exactly the right time to have begun investing. Um, if not yesterday, then today, because the power of compounding is so key. A dollar invested today is worth so much more than one invested five and 10 years from now historically. That's because you can already, you know, you invest money, you earn a return on it. The next amount of return you earn is on the money plus the return. And then it's on the return plus the return. And then it's the return plus the return. And so it can, you know, if it takes in a certain market scenario, X years for your money to double, because that, that principle grows, it takes less than X years for the next doubling and less than, that for the next doubling. So today is the best day to do it. And that, you know, the right way to think about this is to, um, you know, to think about your take home pay as to shoot for, you might not be able to get there right away. You might not ever be able to get there, but a rule of thumb is 50% of your take home pay goes to your needs. So your rent, the gas, you know, the clothes you need for work, 30% to fun and 20% to future you. And that's the stuff that will set up you, set you up to grow your wealth. So maybe in the short term, that's paying down credit card debt that's outstanding. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's paying down high interest rate student loan debt that's outstanding. Maybe it's getting some money in the bank as a cushion. And then it also becomes investing in your 401k at work. Um, and it's also, you know, investing, you know, in a, in a traditional investment account, like one you can get in an Elevest. And I was so proud. My daughter... Um, just started her first full-time job. And she, last night, came home and we were looking at her budget. And I just had such a proud mom moment because she had the rent there and she had, you know, this how much she needs for clothes. And she had the alcohol, make no mistake about that. Uh, but the last two lines were 401k and, you know, saving, investing. And I was like, oh, my heart, my heart, my heart. This Taught is so her great. well. Oh, I'm so <laughs> proud. I'm so proud. <laughs> 
I, I do want to talk more about, um, you know, kind of strategies for women who don't feel financially stable, who like might have a lot of student debt. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of my listeners might be in college or out of college yeah. and they have a lot of student debt racked up. So do you have any advice for someone in that position? Yeah, I think, you know, look, it is, um, first of all, I think, you know, it's, I, I'm not happy that, you know, my generation could go to school and graduate without student debt and that, you know, this generation um, is, is um, bat, you know, burdened with it. It's just simply not fair. Um, that's, so that's a, that's Sally Crotch's opinion, um, you know, and we should think about that when we, we go to the ballot box. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, don't blame yourself. Uh, this is not your fault. And, you know, really, you know, sort of, you know, locking into being smart about it. And so what that means is that if you have student loan debt outstanding, it says has a 7% or higher interest rate to it, maybe 6% or higher, you want to really focus on getting that paid off. Now, I want you to pay off your credit card debt first, because that's the highest interest rate. That's the thing that really bleeds away your net, your, your wealth. Um, but for the student loan debt, anything above seven, really focus on paying that off. Anything below 4%, where a lot of it is just pay that pay that amount you're supposed to pay every month, get that minimum paid, call your student loan provider every six months and ask to have the interest rate, you know, um, taken down. Sometimes they'll surprise you and they, they actually will. Look into, if you have a few of these, um, you know, de- these uh, loans outstanding, look at consolidating at some of the new services that have popped up that will do that and see if that can save you some money. Now, wait a second. You know, you said pay off anything above 7%, keep outstanding anything below 4 In between that is really your choice. What, you know, the historical performance would tell you is, yep, yeah, you can leave that out, you know, invest the money. You should, you know, sort of um, earn more than that over time. But that can be a very personal choice for someone that can say, you know, it's just I hate looking at this every month. I know it's only a four and a half percent rate. It's just driving me berserk. Then go ahead and pay that off too. But, you know, um, just focus on one foot in front of the other. Focus on what you can focus on. Get paid off, you know, that high interest rate debt. And then, you know, continue to work towards getting yourself straight and, and building your wealth. I will say as an aside, some of the worst financial advice out there that I've seen too much of are people who tell you, well, you've got credit card debt outstanding, but build that emergency fund, that bank account, even with the credit card debt outstanding. You should, I, let me just put a line in the saying, you should never do that. You should never do that. You should focus on getting the credit card debt outstanding. Oh, what if I have an emergency? You know, I don't have an emergency fund, I have an emergency. You know, then run up your credit card debt. Uh, but you want to get that stuff paid off as, as rapidly as you possibly can. Okay. Well, speaking of credit cards, can we talk about like the pros and cons of opening up more cards and like when you would want to open up more, more credit cards? I wouldn't. I know. I know you want to build up your credit score, but, and this is a little bit of know yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, opening up a bunch of cards, you know, but, ugh, that temptation there, um, particularly as you're starting out, you know, when one friend seems to be pretty set, another friend, you know, and you want to go out and all that stuff. I just find it easier for myself personally. Not having the temptation is a pretty good thing. So I personally, I keep two two cards. One of which I use all the time. You know, the other which is backup. That's that. Okay. Yeah. I well, this has came up for me personally because um, 
just applying for apartments and I only have two cards mm. and they're like, oh, you really need more. And I'm like, I oh. want more. I know. <laughs> I'm like, do I need more? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't need something else. Right. Um, so you think like minimum is better. Yeah. Look, I, I just don't, I, you know, if you're able to keep a bunch of them, God bless you. But what, what um, is the benefit to, of to, that? Like if you don't need to, well, but that's to your point, you know, what, what does it take to build up your, your credit, um, paying back the student loans, you know, making that minute, the payment you're supposed to make on time, you know, with the credit card, making the payment on time, mm-hmm. paying your rent. If that's reported to the credit bureaus, pay, making that payment on time. Those are the things that could build up your, your credit. Okay. Um, so what about, um, just like talking about investing your money in general and like all the mm-hmm. different ways to invest. Can we talk about that and the different options. Okay. Tell me more. Like, you know, um, if you're going to invest in stock or in property, Mm, like all these different options, like how to know how to navigate that. Well, and that's where an LMS can help you. Um, and look, even I have been at this my whole career and I have, you know, I've, of course I have an account with LMS, you know, and I have an account with one of our financial advisors because that, you know, that can be a key to investing is, you know, whereas with your, our dad's generation is what stock to buy. Well, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be mucking around with all that. It's what asset classes should I be in? Should I be in equities more? Should I be in bonds more? Should I buy my apartment? You know, should I invest in, you know, as I get greater wealth, alternatives that are neither stocks nor bonds, Etc. Um, and that's a decision that Elevest makes. That's what our expertise is. That's what a number of the investment firms' expertise is. But to take a step back, you know, stocks um, highest risk of the traditional investments, typically higher return. Um, stocks, um, also called equities, are rep, you know represent small slivers of ownership of a company. So if you own the stock of Facebook, you own you know, in theory, maybe that chair at Facebook over there. In reality, this is the portion of Facebook's earnings that belong to you. If they pay, the company pays a dividend, this is the portion of the dividends that belong to you. Um, equities tend to, because of that greater risk, what if the company goes bankrupt, you know, has historically more than paid off that risk by appreciating more. So stocks or equities, you know, since the 1920s have gone up about nine and a half percent a year. Each year. Now, wait, I don't remember any years that went up nine and a half percent. Well, typically it doesn't go up that amount. It'll go up 12 percent and then it'll go up just six percent or it'll go down 10 percent. It'll go up 20 percent. There's what is called volatility. But it, when you look at the the trend, it's upward sloping with volatility along the way. Um, so and one of the mistakes I think we make as women is we t- we tend to because, again, of how we've been socialized and educated, we tend to overestimate and over remember what the downside was in the past and don't remember the upside as much. So that's number one. That's the stocks. The next is bonds, otherwise known as debt, which are the loans that essentially you as an individual make to a company. You, you know, the money you put in is is, is in essence lent to the company. Um, you get that money back, you get interest payments, and you get that money back over time in the form of principal, principal repayments. Typically less risky um, because the bondholders get paid before the equity holders get their earnings, um, but not as much upside. And if you think about an individual bond, 
you know, nobody's going to give you more than you lent them at the end of it. You get back what you put in. Um, and so the returns there can come from, you know, the different market scenarios, um, you know, broader what broader interest rates are doing. But they also come from interest payments. And so an historical, straightforward um, asset allocation has been for younger people, more of these equities or stocks, less of the bonds. And then as you get older, as you get to your parents' age, it'll be more of the bonds and less of the equity. You know, a separate decision, um, sometimes related, but sometimes separate is, well, should I buy an apartment? Does that count? Um, okay. Apartments and homes are fantastic. They are great for living in, and they have been historically pretty good investments. Um, whereas the equity markets, have gone up, you know, nine and a half percent each year on average with lots of, you know, up and downs in between the real estate market different in different parts of the country, but is average closer to three percent. OK, um, the other issue with real estate is sometimes it's hard to sell that with, you know, the stocks, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, the, the stock exchanges are open five days a week. I mean, not Christmas and Thanksgiving and stuff, but five days a week. You know, you want to sell your home. You can go months or years in which it's on the market. And so those can be terrific investments. Uh, but, you know, if I came to you and said, hey, I have an investment. It's not called real estate. It's called smell estate. You know, and on average, the returns have been 3% annually, but you have to tie up your money and you might not be able to get it back. And, you know, it takes the mortgage, i.e., you know, you got to take on some, some lending in order to buy. You'd be like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. So it does have a place. It's just not hasn't been historically as attractive investment. Okay, thank you. I think that's a very helpful breakdown. Um, Great. And for people who are just starting to invest, and you know maybe they want to go make an Elevest account, um, is there an amount of money that you would say is like this is a good like somewhere to start, like yeah. ideal? Well, and that's why we have no minimum because mm -hmm. look, the truth is. Investing has felt inaccessible for us. Yeah. I mean, not for me because I work in the industry, but for the broader us. But, you know, in particular for younger women, in particular for women of color, in particular for first generation women, in particular for women who just haven't had the $1,000 or $100,000 needed to open an account, we wanted to make it as accessible as possible. Because to be frank, these investment minimums that the industry has had are by definition, exclusionary, by definition, sexist, by definition, racist. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, just just let's make it as low as we can. Of course, we lose money on these small accounts, but it's an important part of our mission. You know, so if what you've got, honestly, is 20 bucks to put in, just go, right? Mm -hmm. If it's 100 bucks, go. If it's 10,000 bucks, go. Um, but just get yourself started. And that's why I sort of like, you know, the what percent of my take-home pay should it be, right? And so 20% going to future you, maybe that's 10% to your 401k at work, maybe it's 10% into an Elevest account, a bit out of every paycheck. I know those numbers seem big right now, but over time, over time, if it's 1% that you can put in, put in 1%, but but ha you know, having a percent of the paycheck is a way to sort of say what's, you know, what's the right approach to rather than saying, oh, if you don't, you got to put in a thousand. Right. No, just put in a percent out of every paycheck. Therefore, you're making it a habit. It's getting taken off the top. You you don't even think about it after a while. 
Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that because I think everything you, you're saying and doing, it just it does make it so much more accessible. And I've had this conversation with so many of my friends, like just feeling very inadequate in terms of finances. No. Like we just yeah. we don't even know how to approach it. <laughs> Well, and that's, again, that's because you've received you've two things. You've received these messages that, and so all women are like, oh, I'm just not good at this, right? How how can today it still be an attractive female characteristic to be bad with money? No wonder, you know, money is our number one source of stress. But then, of course, we don't teach it at school either, yeah. you know, unless you go to some particularly great school. But my kids didn't get personal finance in school, and it's it's seriously an outrage. Yeah. They really need to put this in every high school. Oh. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I am now in the, let's say the prime of my adulthood. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never used Trig. We can just get rid of Trig, right? (laughs) So I worked on Wall Street. I've been in finance. I've used algebra. I'm going to admit it. But Trig, I can now definitively say we can get rid of Trig. (laughs) I'm behind that fully. (laughs) I'm fully behind that. Well, it's like, I think about, I mean, just in a broader sense, there's so many things that we're not taught. I mean, finance, even just like being an adult and like Mm. bills and like, Mm -hmm. you know, like living situations, like all of that needs to be taught and we're just thrown out there and we don't even know what we're doing. And (laughs) I think that also ties into like, you know, people racking up debt and like sometimes Mm -hmm. not necessarily needing to rack up as much as they end up racking up because they just, you know, didn't know as much about it. Well, exactly. I mean, I remember when I was younger and, and getting the credit card statement and nobody reads that fine print Yeah. and saying, oh, look, I could pay back $100 or 10 Oh, I'm going to pay 10 right? Yeah. And just not – and then all of a sudden, you know, over the course of months, I'm like, wait, the, the amount I owe is actually going up even though I'm not charging more. Mm-hmm. You know, just the that kind of basic of – you know, this is, Hey, Sally, you're about to make a big mistake. Yeah. I, I bet as you just said that someone's thinking, Oh, I only paid. <laughs> right. Cause you think that, Oh, well, why would I pay the maximum if I can pay the minimum and then I can, you know, go out three times more. It's no, it's, it's, um, it's not right. Well, hopefully as you know, we start to spread more awareness about it, open up the conversation, maybe people will become more mm-hmm. educated. Um, I also wanted to chat with you about negotiating your salary out of college mm-hmm. as a woman, because I think that's mm-hmm. something that's very difficult for women to navigate. So I would love to hear your thoughts around that. Well, it's a great question. So first of all, I would say if you are, you should always negotiate. The only exception to it is, is that if coming out of college, you're starting at a program where they're bringing in 50 kids or 200 kids, you probably don't have a lot of room for negotiation on that. They've got, you know, this is how much they pay. They have that many kids. That's it. This is your signing bonus or not. This is the day you start. And let's face it, you got to start that day. You got to take that pay. Okay. Except for that, everything else is up for negotiation. Um, And that means that when you receive a job, I'd say, 90 times, 95, 97 times out of 100, they've left something in their back pocket. Um, And you should ask for it. And sometimes that will be pay. You know, thank you for the offer. I was hoping, you know, for an offer with a couple of thousand more, something like that. Mm. Um, Sometimes you can negotiate other things like, um, you know, can they send you to class in the evening? 
you know, can you uh, work, you know, from X office instead of Y office? Can you, you know, have a, you know, time working abroad? Can you work with, you know, in this division as well as that division? Can you have flexibility, work from home? There, There are many things you can negotiate. I wouldn't, you know, as a young person, I wouldn't go and negotiating all of them at once, but I wouldn't be scared to negotiate a thing. Mm-hmm. And that thing is money. Now, the fear is, what if I try to negotiate and they rescind the offer? I've literally never heard of that happening. Like literally, you know, they've given you an offer and you're like, you know, I really was hoping for a thousand dollars more or $3,000 more. They're going to be like, oh, for God's sake, never mind. You know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, It just won't. And so do it, of course, in a you know, problem solving, fact based, you know, type of way, and then negotiate everything from then on, you know, when it comes up to the end of the year, you know, you're setting goals for next year, Um, you know, talk about what it will take to get that next raise talk, you know, have an open conversation, you know, at my level, um, you know, in this kind of job, you know, what is the salary band? What are people who are doing similar jobs to me making? Those are very reasonable questions. Mm-hmm. You know, talking HR, are there bands? How, how do you move from one salary band to another? What do you like? You know, what would it take? What would you need to see from me in order for me to get the promotion, in order for me to get a $10,000 raise? Very, very reasonable, non-threatening problem solving, you know, conversations. And and what I would say is it is in the company's interest for you to do well and therefore for you to make more money. That's you're just solving a problem together with your boss. That's all. Yeah. In terms of negotiating the salary, do you have any specific suggestions regarding language to use or or to avoid? Yeah, well, don't say or else, right? <laughs> True. You know, if you threaten, be careful because if you threaten, you got to be you got to be ready to to back it up. I mean, never threaten to leave or you know anything if you're not ready to go. Um, and I've I've seen that. You know, more. Let's be honest, more with the guys than the gals. Uh, but you know, I you know I used to watch it back in the hoopla days of Wall Street, that people would come in and, and, you know, with a job offer or pretend to have a job offer every year. And you can do that, but you don't want to do it a lot. You don't want to be the one person who comes in and threatens every year. So, look, I think, you know, I, I don't know about words to use, but I think getting clear in your performance reviews for what what is success and being as quantified as you possibly can, which I know is a little bit scary. But rather than just hope, you both think you're doing a good job. What if you if it's pertinent to your role, what are the sales you know, numbers that y'all are looking for? How many past audits, you know, a year would, would they be looking for? What kind of client sat numbers, satisfaction numbers would they be looking for? You know, if there's a way that you can come to agreement about this is what good performance looks like Mm -hmm. and good performance will, and this is what excellent performance like and and, an excellent performance will lead to X, Y, Z. The more you can, you might not make it, but the more you can understand it. And then you're both shooting for the same target as opposed to you thinking I'm doing great. And your boss is like, Oh, you know, the sales numbers aren't really where they should be. Yeah. I think also when discussing, you know, what, what number to suggest and asking for a salary. Um, so I have a non-traditional job and I work for myself and, Mm. um, 
there was a time, and I started this straight out of college, and then there was an opportunity I had for a job, and it was, um, you know, a man asking, basically giving me a job offer, and they just said, like, how much would it cost if we want you to do this for us? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so just, like, I had to come up with a number, right? And I right. remember going on a walk with my friend, just, like, telling her what was going on, and she was like, well, how much do you think you might say? And I was like, oh, maybe this or this. And she goes, okay, but how much would you say if you were a man? And mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, oh, crap. And, like, yeah. I felt like I just, like, my eyes were open. And I was like, you're so right. Like, I didn't even realize, yeah. you know. Like, as soon as she asked me that, I was like, oh, my number is higher now. Well, and there's another trick, which is what if you were doing it for a friend? Yeah. And so if you were negotiating for a friend, what, what would that be? And that typically also will be higher than a number you would have for yourself. I think that's a really good tip. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your book, Own It. Oh, I feel like that's a while ago. You know, that was that was a crazy time because it came out right after Trump was elected. It's, <laughs> it's like, what, it's what's happening? <laughs> what's happening? Like, where are we? But the, the concept behind Own It is that, you know, so much of the literature and the advice to women in business essentially, frankly, has boiled down to be, you know, down to change, just change, just be different, be more like a man, be more risk tolerant, be more certain, be more this, be more that. As I look at it, stepping back as a business person, I see, you know, the power of diversity is not bringing in a bunch of people who are different and telling them to act like the majority. It's by allowing our diversity to flourish and that we women really have a lot to offer in the workforce. And so it really walks through in addition to sort of my personal stories, which I, some of them I can't believe happened. You know, what, what are those things that we can, you know, really, really, you know, drive, really recognize as strengths of ours and build upon as opposed to try to pull back. So, you know, one is our relationship orientation. We, you know, there, you know, everybody is different. Everybody's a perfect little flower, but there are gender differences and women tend to be more attuned to relationships, tend to intuit more. That's important in in an age in which technology is taking over Mm -hmm. those relationships. That's hard to replace. Women tend to be, we talked about risk awareness earlier. We do tend to be more alert to risk, more looking around corners. We also hit on this one early. We tend to be more holistic in our thinking, Men tend to make decisions faster. We tend to make decisions more holistically, slower, but more complete. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to, you know, really bring mission to our work, that we are motivated absolutely by money. But the number one reason we accept jobs is because of the difference they can make in people's lives. And so recognizing that there can be gender differences and that we should celebrate them um, as opposed to um, you know, sort of trying to mute them or, or sort of blend in. Now you have to work at the right company to do it. Let's be honest, right? Not every company will accept that. Some companies will say just, and I've worked for companies that would, where they'll essentially say fall in line. So the other advice I give to anybody who doesn't fall in the majority of business people as they exist today, if you are able to, if you have more than one job offer, I totally get it if you don't, but if you do, and you have choices, look up, look at the company, who's in that C-suite, who's in that, you know, around the CEO. Mm. And if you see people like yourself, good. If you don't, beware, just, 
just be aware. It, it, it may not be impossible for you, but it's not going to be easier for you. Okay. I think that's great advice. So people definitely need to check that book out if they want more. Um, I, I'm so glad I got to talk. I really appreciate you sharing all this advice. Um, and I know a lot of people will be helped by this. So thank you again. And to wrap up, can you just remind everyone where they can get more from you and start their Elevest account? Yeah. So thank you for having me. It really is. It's such a pleasure. And I hope I was able to be just a little bit helpful to some of your listeners. So everybody go check out elevest.com, E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T.com. Um, and for new clients, if you type in the code wellness, realness, either in the gift code on the app or elevest.com slash wellness, realness, you'll get $50 to open your, your first account because we you know, we at all of us are all about putting more money in the hands of women. Um, and so we want that to really start with, with your listeners, put, put money directly in their hands so they can begin investing. Perfect. Thank you again so much, Sally. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks. Thank you so much to Sally for coming on the podcast and sharing all of her knowledge. Don't forget that you can head to elevest.com slash wellness realness and you'll get $50 into your account to start investing with Elevest. And you definitely want to take advantage of that. I definitely did. You can find a ton of resources at elevest.com and don't forget to check out Sally's book, Own It. If you enjoy the show and think someone else would benefit from it as well, make sure you share it with them. If you share it on social media, make sure you tag me and Wellness Realness Podcast. That way I can say thank you. You know, I always love when you share your favorite episodes. And if you're not already in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, make sure you hop into that Facebook group. You can just search and request to join and I will add you in. As always, if you enjoy the show and want to share your support, make sure you leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It really means the world to me and helps me spread the word about the podcast so that we can continue to grow our community. That's going to be it for today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and I'll chat with you again next time. Bye.